This episode of the Waters and Harvey Show was recorded live at the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts on June 16, 2020, as part of the Asheville Ideas Festival. As a note to our listeners, we apologize for some of the audio issues at the beginning of the program. And I'm Marcus Harvey. And I got to tell you, I'm really happy to be here with my brother, Dr. Marcus Harvey. And he has told me that he will behave today because we have a live audience. Uh, you all know how Marcus can be on the radio. He's not going to take any stabs at me today and any jabs. Huh? Okay. <laughs> and everyone knows in the last show, you know, uh, because we're getting comments about this last show that we did. Marcus finally took the step to say, you know, I disagree with you. And he started taking on Alexis de Tocqueville. So there was an interesting conversation that happened after that because I told him, I said, well, we can put Alexis de Tocqueville in conversation with other folks, but everybody is talking about Alexis de Tocqueville. <laughs> well, he deserves to be challenged. I'll probably continue to do that. But we're definitely glad to have you here for this show. This is new for Marcus and I. You know, uh, we may be a little nervous. You know, Marcus and I had the opportunity. Well, it's been about a year now that we started having conversations about taking the Waters and Harvey show out into the community. The reason why we started the show back in 2014, and it's been, it's hard to believe that we have been doing the show since 2014, started at a low power radio station here in Asheville at WRES. We were invited to bring it to Blue Ridge Public Radio. And I got to tell you, I'm so happy to be working with the team at Blue Ridge Public Radio and want to thank them for being here to record this live episode of the show. And even though we have you in the audience, we're thinking about our listeners who listen to the show regularly. We believe many of you are among those listeners, and we want to thank you for listening to the show. Marcus and I are going to continue to do what we do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. But we started having conversations about taking the show out on the road and talking directly to the community. This is the first time we're able to do that live with you all sitting here in the audience with us. So many of you may remember we did do two shows which were invited audience participation, but those were done via Zoom. Um, And one conversation was about civic engagement. The other one was about the issue of social justice and its relationship to, uh, to, to the reparations question, which is a big question that we know is happening, you know, that taking place across the nation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so we're, we're, we're looking forward to making connections between those prior two live shows and today's live show. That's right. It's a very, very important discussion. So you may, hear, you may hear us reference from time to time those shows, those past shows that we've done. It's been an interesting group of, group of guests that we have had, although Marcus likes it when he's there by himself and he can just pontificate, you know, on the show. And, and so, but you've got to have me with you today, brother, and, and some other guests. But it's good to have you all here. I, we have in front of us, you know, some notes because Marcus and I like to keep notes in front of us just to keep us on point. We are excited about today's conversation because this is an important conversation, um, a conversation about higher education in general and about HBC, HBCUs in particular. 
Um, so this is a bit different, uh, different conversation. We haven't had a conversation around this. What's interesting for me is that, you know, I did not have the privilege or the honor of going to a historically black college and university, but I like to think that I got a little bit of that through my relationship with Dr. John Hope Franklin and with Dr. Bill Turner, who you have heard on the show. But Marcus has the distinction of having, is a graduate, an alum of one of the major historically black colleges and universities, and you'll probably hear him talk about that today. Um, again, this is live, and we're always thinking about both you and the people who are listening via radio, and so we want to welcome them via radio and podcast. Um, this is a part of the Asheville Ideas Fest, as I just mentioned. And so what we're going to do now is invite Chancellor Nancy Cable, Chancellor of UNC Asheville, to come out and tell us a bit about Asheville Ideas Fest, and she's going to introduce the guest that Marcus and I will be in conversation with today. Thank you again for being here. We look forward to your participation in this conversation. Good morning, everyone. Because I have a chance here to share with a wider audience through the radio a bit about the Asheville Ideas Fest, let me give you a sense of what the vision has been. You know, the mountains of North Carolina have long been a gathering place for people, for ideas, for hard work, and for progress. For centuries, the Cherokee have known, has known, have known of this land as Tokiatsi, which stands for where they race. <clears throat> Visitors and residents alike <clears throat> find inspiration here in Asheville, one of America's truly great cities. And we invite you today to learn more about the Asheville Ideas Fest and to watch up close and personal a gathering of thinkers and doers. The Asheville Ideas Fest is rooted in our shared humanity, the belief that seeing the world's great challenges, <clears throat> excuse me, from new perspectives will drive positive and united change in this world. We must commit ourselves to true engagement. Respected thought leaders call us forward to engage in what is best for all as we move forward. New voices need to be heard, and fellow citizens with whom we agree, as well as those with whom we disagree, need to be gathered together to work things through. Now and always, engaging in civil dialogue is the most patriotic action that we can take to strengthen our democracy. Why is UNC Asheville an ideal convener and host? Well, I'm admittedly very biased about this great university. But as a nationally ranked institution of higher education, UNC Asheville is inherently the right environment for ideas to be raised, shared, discussed, and put into action. The dynamic, thought-provoking, and immersive experience of our Asheville Ideas Fest together with you will help ensure UNC Asheville, the city and surrounding region of Asheville, Western North Carolina, are always and once again recognized as innovative incubators of new concepts, fresh ideas that further our well-established reputation for vibrant arts, culture, culinary, strong health care, literary, liter excuse me, literary and music scenes. Let me now uh, introduce you to the panelists who will be with you today. First, I'm going to start with our two colleagues, uh, first Darren Waters. 
Dr. Darren Waters is currently the Deputy Secretary for the North Carolina Office of Archives and History. He oversees the operations and divisions of the State History and Maritime Museums, State Historic Sites and Properties, Archives and Records, Historical research, researches and research and resources, including the Office of Historical Research and the Office of State Archaeology. Originally from Asheville, Dr. Waters was most recently, I'm very proud to say, an associate professor of history at UNCA and also served as executive director of UNCA's Office of Community Engagement. Waters received his political science and government degree from Liberty University, a master's in history from North Carolina State University, and a PhD in history from North Carolina Chapel Hill. He has served on various, many, many, many nonprofit boards, state boards, including the North Carolina Historical Commission and the African American Heritage Commission. Darren, thank you. Thank you. Dr. <clears throat> Dr. Marcus Harvey joined the Religious Studies faculty at UNCA in 2013, where he teaches courses in Indigenous, African, and Africana religions, Zora Neale Hurston, Literature, Black Religion, and Religion and Popular Culture. A beloved faculty member, I must say. Informed by fieldwork conducted in various areas of Ghana and Nigeria, Dr. Harvey's research explores sacred understanding and matrices of knowledge production among the Akan and Southern Ghana and Yorobi uh, tribes of Southwestern Nigeria. He is the co-creator and co-host of the Waters and Harvey Show, an NPR platform for in-depth conversations that address the often unacknowledged historical experience and cultural significance of black communities in Western North Carolina and beyond, as well as a range of vexing challenges facing the communities of color across the United States and abroad. Thank you very much for being a part of this, Marcus. We appreciate it. And now to begin enter, uh, introducing our panelists, let me ask uh, Dr. Lynn Pascarella to come forward now, and I will introduce her as she's coming to the stage. Dr. Lynn Pascarella, appointed president of the American Association of Colleges and Universities in 2016, after serving as the 18th president of Mount Holyoke College. She has held the positions as provost at the University of Hartford, vice provost of academic affairs, and dean of the graduate school at the University of Rhode Island, where she taught for more than two decades. A philosopher by training, whose work has been combining teaching and scholarship with local and global engagement, Dr. Pascarella has written extensively on medical ethics, metaphysics, public policy, and the philosophy of law. Her most recent book is What We Value, Public Health, Social Justice, and Educating for Democracy. This text examines the role of higher education in addressing some of the most pressing contemporary issues at the intersection of ethics, law, and public policy. Dr. Pascarella is also the immediate past president of the Global Phi Beta Kappa Society and host of the Northeast Public Radio's The Academic Minute, 
which for many of us as presidents and chancellors across this nation were, were tuned in to hear almost every morning from Lynn Pascarella. Lynn, thank you for joining us, my friend. Next, I have the honor of introducing you to three of my colleagues here in the UNC system. Three of the, three, the four of us work together very collaboratively across a number of issues for the state and the advancement of higher education. First, Dr. Harold Martin, Sr., <coughs> PhD. Harold Martin was elected the 12th Chancellor of North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University on May 22, 2009. You can do the math. That makes him clearly senior in much of this. And he formally began his tenure in June of 2009. Martin brought more than 30 years of transformative leadership experience in higher education to this role. He is the first alumnus to serve as the university's CEO and chancellor. Dr. Martin's leadership has been distinguished by a focus on long-range strategic planning and tactical leadership that have dramatically improved North Carolina A&T's standing among the nation's land-grant doctoral research comprehensive universities, as well as among the historically black colleges and universities. I believe that North Carolina A&T is now the largest student population of HBCU in the United States. Martin is heralded in education and business thought leaders at, in uh, Time Magazine, the leadership brief, and he's been honored by the Thurgood Marshall College Fund with the Education Leadership Award. In 2017, uh, he was named America's most influential HBCU leader by HBCU Digest, which came on the heels of him being named the Triad Business Journal's 2016 most admired CEOs in the state. In 2015, Dr. Martin was named to the Ebony Power List of Power 100 list alongside some of the nation's most prominent African American thinkers, artists, government officials, business leaders, and educational leaders. Welcome, Harold. Glad to have you. Next is Johnson Akinley, who is the Chancellor at North Carolina Central. Johnson, welcome. Dr. Akinley was appointed to his chancellorship in uh, June of 2017. He has worked very hard to expand the university's academic offerings and partnerships, including new agreements with community colleges across the state, as well as introduce the campus to a robust, online distance education program that is one of the models in this state for online education. He also created K through 12 initiatives close to and on his campus and implemented a security strategy to increase safety on campus for all campus constituencies. Dr. Akinley arrived at North Carolina Central in February of 13 to serve first as provost excuse me, and Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs. He holds a bachelor's degree in telecommunications and a master's degree in media technology, perfectly suited for our venue today, from Alabama A&M University, as well as a doctorate in human communication studies at Howard University. Outside of his academic career, Johnson Akinley is well known as a motivational speaker, consultant, writer, editor, documentarian who has produced work for independent and governmental agencies, including NASA and NOAA. 
Welcome. Glad to have you, Johnson. <clears throat> and last but definitely not least is Dr. Elwood Robinson. Dr. Robinson currently serves as the 13th Chancellor of Winston-Salem State University, a position he has held since 2015. As Chief Executive Officer at Winston-Salem State, he has overseen the development of an ambitious strategic plan that sets the course for a university to be recognized as the leader in educating students who strive to participate in a dynamic society. Dr. Robinson is a thought leader in the area of social mobility, and Winston-Salem State has been one of only four universities in the nation to reach the top 20 on CollegeNet Social Mobility Index for four consecutive, consecutive years. Additionally, in 27, 2017, the university was named Social Mobility Innovator by CollegeNet. No small feat. And a native of Ivanhoe, North Carolina, Dr. Robinson graduated magna cum laude from North Carolina Central University in 1978 with a degree in psychology and then earned his master's degree in the field at Fisk University in Tennessee. After completing a pre-doctoral internship at Duke University Medical School, performing rotations in neuropsychology, psychiatric inpatient and behavioral medicine and health psychology, he began his doctoral work on clinical psychology at Penn State where he earned his PhD in clinical psychology in 1986. Active in professional and civic organizations, Dr. Robinson has received numbers of awards and honors over the course of his career. A former National Institutes of Health Health Fellow, he received the Sigma Xi Award, the Omega Psi Phi Founders Award, and the Image Award for the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, and the Order of the Longleaf Pine in this state. Thank you for joining us, Elwood. And thank you all. Proceed. Thank you, Dr. Cable. So once again, it's good to be here with you all. Marcus and I are definitely honored to be here on stage with the chancellors and you, Madam President. And we are looking forward to a very dynamic conversation. We've already had a discussion about some of the many questions that Marcus and I thought about uh, in thinking about this whole topic of a renaissance of HBCUs. Um, we did a Google search. Marcus and I did our homework um, and did a Google search. You Google search the topic are the phrase renaissance of HBCUs and a plethora of articles just pop up. Just this week, in the New York Times on June 11th, uh, June 11th, there was a lengthy article about why students are choosing HBCUs. So it does seem to be a renaissance of sorts taking place among HBCUs. So Chancellor Martin, as the chancellor of what is now the largest HBCU in the nation, and congratulations on, on that. Um, we want to direct the first question to you, but we want the rest of you to feel, to jump in and respond so that this is a conversation and not just a response to questions. But we thought we would direct this first question to you, Chancellor Martin, that as a leader of A&T University, now the largest HBCU in the nation, can you tell us what you think accounts for this renewed interest in historically black colleges and universities? I, I would begin with um, the late 1990s, early 2000s, focusing significantly on increasing diversity. It was a fact, it was a conversation, it was an important discussion 
across majority of universities. HBCUs did not respond. We had a corner on the market, African-American students up to that time frame were going to HBCUs in record numbers. HBCUs had to back away, regroup, and reassess uh, how we were going to reach ourselves in the business of higher education and framing on those things that were critically important for our institution's future and what was attracting uh, those students that we once served in large numbers at our institutions as well. We saw significant levels of investment in new academic programs, transformations of our campuses, uh, but you also saw uh, this occurring at a time when our nation was going through significant discussions as well. That peaked during the window, unfortunately, of the murder of George Floyd uh, in May of 2020. And that conversation that emerged from the murder of George Floyd and the national conversations and protests of students, very diverse young people all across the nation talking about inequities in America, not just about policing, but also inequities in education, in health, in unemployment, in a variety of areas. And so it created tremendous opportunities for historical black colleges and universities and parents of very bright college age, college one students to reflect on environments where their sons and daughters would be able to gain access to a highly quality competitive educational experience without feeling the pressures uh, and anxieties of dealing with racism in other spaces around America, and in particular some of our college campuses. You're listening to The Watterson Harvest Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back after this short break. You're listening to The Watterson Harvest Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. This episode about historically black colleges and universities was recorded on June 16th at the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts as part of the Asheville Ideas Festival. Brother, I, I don't want to dominate this conversation in the form of questions, but there, you all are raising a number of issues. Uh, Dr. Pascarella, you brought up the issue of the liberal arts and this ongoing debate between STEM subjects and liberal arts, and I'm interested to hear how your institutions are addressing that. Dr. Pascarella, I'm interested in hearing, I think both Marcus and I, and I think the audience would be interested in hearing how that debate is going. Do you feel that we're moving the needle to get people to understand that a liberal education is very important long-term to the health of our society and to the health of our democracy? What do we need to do? And I raise that question I have another question. I have a few questions. I'm writing notes. You got a lot of questions. questions. <laughs> and so I'm going to throw that one out. I'll come back to it because I'm interested in sustainability of all of this. But I am curious and uh, about hearing how we're moving that needle on this liberal arts mm-hmm. debate and and the, its important role and how your institutions are addressing yeah, and, that. And, and if I could add to that, just <laughs> quickly, just, just, <laughs> just quickly and, and this is very closely related. Um, uh, I, I would be curious to hear from any of you, uh, Dr. Pascarella, others, how you go about making the case for, for the liberal arts. Because we're, we're, I mean, and I experience this all the time in the classroom. We really are in an environment um, that is struggling to even see the liberal arts as a valuable educational modality, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So, so as educational leaders, 
interesting. How do you make the case? I think right. that's a show in and of itself. Anyway. So this is something we think yeah. about every day, but I also wanted to add to the excellent points that were being made um, just a moment ago, and that is uh, about belonging uncertainty. Uh, I have a colleague, Sia Sheldon at AACNU, who does work on cognitive bandwidth, and she writes about the ways in which Racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, food and shelter insecurities actually reduce the capacity of students to be able to learn. As you can imagine, you're not going to worry about your next biology exam if you're worried about getting beaten to death um, because you're living in your car. But one of the biggest deprivers of cognitive bandwidth is belonging uncertainty. And HBCUs, and I know women's colleges, I was president of Mount Holyoke College, uh, provide a sense of belonging that is invaluable at this moment in time, as we are seeing a surge in all of these forms of, of discrimination over and uh, covert discrimination. With respect to making the case for the liberal arts and sciences, um, it is more important than ever. Um, if you look at what happened with COVID-19, um, it didn't matter how much technical, scientific, medical training physicians had when it came to deciding who was going to get allocated the last ventilator or whether to hold hands with a dying patient because they couldn't be visited by relatives under the circumstances or go to try to treat someone who could be saved, whether to go into the hospital in the first place without adequate protective equipment. And these questions, the most fundamental questions of human existence about the meaning and purpose of life are those that the humanities, social sciences, arts can help us deal with. Science alone isn't sufficient. And you know, I was on a commission for the National Academies looking at the integration of arts and sciences and humanities. And, and the consensus report was entitled Branches from the Same Tree. And the title was derived from a quote by Albert Einstein, who said, all sciences, religions, arts are branches from the same tree. And he recognized the growing fascism um, in, in Europe before World War II and talked about the ways in which we must adopt an integrative approach to the most vexing problems facing us. Uh, and so this is the case. But we have not done a good job um, in explaining, in, in right. engaging in code switching. Yeah. Um, there still is there's a persistent belief in higher education as existing within the ivory tower as a willful disconnect from the practical matters of everyday life. We need to be out in our communities serving as public intellectuals, doing the work that you're doing in making visible. This is part of why I do the academic minute, it's 90 seconds because it's an academic minute. <laughs> um, it introduces listeners on NPR to cutting edge research scholarship, what's going on in classrooms, in college and on university campuses across the country. And that's what we need to do, make visible, go into the communities and take advantage of local epistemologies, work on our shared problems together, not position ourselves as experts in an ivory tower. Well, <laughs> I, do. I think each of us uh, leads a different institution. Um, our universities are as diverse as institutions of higher education in general. We're a big land-grant institution, big STEM, big engineering, um, science, and research. The other institutions are master's category, uh, comprehensive institutions, but we have different missions. 
Uh, what makes them? We love the fact that we are attracting some of the nation's most highly prepared, geeky, nerdy students you'll find anywhere on college campuses. And I'm the number one nerd. I say that to our students on a regular basis so that they don't feel um, um, put upon or uh, as an outsider being a nerd, loving math, loving science. Society is demanding increasing numbers of intrusion of technology in our lives, from education to health to transportation uh, in a variety of ways. And that means then we've got to produce more highly prepared uh, math and science oriented young people with an appropriate balance on arts and humanities and social sciences as well. They have to be great communicators and have great social graces and social skills. So the arts and humanities are very important to our campus. We've created a very important, significant college of art, humanities, and social sciences on our campus and have made big investments. Uh, and it has become one of the largest colleges on our campus in the midst of a lot of nerdy students across all disciplines. But we also have to drive our universities into areas where they can thrive. Uh, we, as a language institution, thrive in innovation and research and science, and that's creating national visibility, enhance increased growth and interest in our university and philanthropic groups, corporate entities, and business leaders. And that's critically important. We're also critically important to the community we serve. All of our universities are in low-wealth minority communities. And except for the presence of our universities as major economic drivers and transformation of the conversation and the attention we bring to our communities, we're driving growth, attracting industries, creating opportunities for tax dollars investment in our communities, better housing, better public schools, better teachers, investments with retail and development coming into our communities. So our universities are more than simply educational community opportunities for producing uh, large numbers of graduates. That's critically important. But we are anchor institutions in our communities that are also keeping alive the richness of our culture and our history and the arts uh, of our communities that have lasted for decades, for centuries, and it's important for our universities to stand up in that space. So while we have different missions, it, the liberal arts are critically important for our universities because of our importance in archiving and continue to keep alive that great history and traditions of our contributions to this nation as well. And so a key point I'd like to ensure that we walk away with is that our universities are not going to a renaissance. We are transitioning to places where there are opportunities today where a decade ago or two decades ago, the community was not prepared to open the doors of opportunity for our institutions to step in and be more significant contributors. We are major contributors to producing knowledge and research and scholarship but we also are producing some of the nation's most highly prepared African-American and other graduates who are making a difference in our communities, 
and in our businesses around the nation as well. And so we are big contributors as institutions, quite honestly. And it's important for us to continue to share that message in more significant ways. And platforms like these allow us to be able to do that. I'd like to just add a quick uh, uh, point to that. When, when we look at the subject of liberal arts education and uh, the STEM engineering and all of that, I think we would agree that liberal arts education provides the foundation for a strong academic base. You talk about humanities and music and religion and philosophy and all of that. And our institutions have done very well in that area. Um, if you look at some of the strong leaders that on the social, political, social activist platform, they have emanated from many of the programs that we have in our institution. For instance, the social activist, activist Reverend William Dr. Barber, you all know him, he's a graduate of NCCU. But the shift and the focus to STEM and STEM discipline, even as a liberal art institution, is driven by the marketplace today and the workforce, the new knowledge that is being created in engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, forensics, and all of that. So it is, as, as, as HBCUs, we have to try to focus and balance our curriculum uh, in both ways. While we still pay attention to music, we have the best jazz, jazz studies program, I would say, in the nation. But at the same time, we have to begin to bring in new programs that would help to expand our enrollment and bring new students to us in those areas that I've mentioned, uh, in clinical research, in biomedical, biotechnology, biosciences. Uh, NCCU, for instance, is, we call ourselves a liberal arts institution with a heavy dose of research. We have two research institutes on our campus, Biomedical Biotechnology Research Institute that we refer to as BBRI, where we do heavy research in neuroscience, uh, in you know, cardiometabolic diseases uh, that disproportionately uh, impact uh, uh, people of color, minority, and our students engage with top researchers in that particular field. We also have another institute that we refer to as the Biomanufacturing Technology uh, Institute, uh, an enterprise which we refer to as you know, Bright. We also do heavy research in biomanufacturing, uh, producing drugs uh, in those areas that I've mentioned, cancer, neuroscience, and all of that. So the question that comes up in terms of whether or not we are putting emphasis on liberal arts education or STEM, I don't believe we have a choice now. If we're going to be able to produce, you know, the students that are needed in the workforce, particularly as diverse institutions. And so we have to pay more attention to the liberal arts aspect, as well as introducing uh, new programs and to create a plethora of opportunities for our students who are coming to us. I do think we have to begin to uh, repackage this whole concept of liberal arts and liberal education. 
for the past, our last strategic plan was fully focused on liberal education. And in fact, we adopted almost the model that, that they use here at UNC Asheville, uh, which is really the standard bearer in terms of what we do in liberal arts education, in my opinion, in the state. Uh, but sometimes, and what, what, what I found is that language matters. It really matters. So almost everything we do today, you gotta, you gotta parcel out every single word to make sure that you're telling the story where people can really appreciate it. So when you start talking about liberal education in a, in a geopolitical world, that can get extremely confusing to folks. And people say, well, that's a liberal or that's a conservative. That's not what this is all about. So I think that we have a responsibility uh, to begin to, uh, to educate folks and to present to the world what this is all about. Like liberal education and liberal arts is, is, is vital to every single thing that we do. And it's about how we integrate them into the curriculum across the board. Every engineer, you know, needs, needs to understand music and arts and beauty. You know, all these things are, this is what makes us human and our humanity. We don't run away from our humanity because we happen to be an engineer or a doctor or anything else. It is this holistic perspective that gives us uh, the kind of the intellectual breath to be able to be creative and to be able to be innovative. And that's the story that we have to tell. And that's what we're about. And I don't think we're doing a good job, a, a good enough job telling that story. Yeah, I, these are all key points. And I was just... Great points, and I would just add before um, I throw yet another question out there, um, I kind of want to uh, backtrack a little bit and just, just, just make a quick note about my own experience as an HBCU graduate. So I attended Morehouse College from 97 to 2001. I'm dating myself. Um, wow, it's been a long time. Um, but part of what's unique about Morehouse is that it is a, um, it's a single, so it's an HBCU, but it's also a single gender instance single gender school, so it's an all-male, it's, it's an all-male black school. And I think it's the only, such, the only such institution in the country, if not, if not the world. And so um, my experience there, as I was discussing with some of our panelists earlier, was, was uniquely transformative, um, not primarily because of the academic rigor that I encountered there. It really had everything to do with something that Dr. Pascarella mentioned earlier. Um, namely the way in which Morehouse addressed this issue of belonging uncertainty, especially for black men in particular, right? So um, uh, I kind of focus on the belonging uncertainty um, suffered by black males was sort of woven into the curriculum um, and woven into the school's mission, into the curricular priorities in ways that probably couldn't exist anywhere else, right? And so. Um, you know, were it not for uh, that sort of transformative experience around situating myself in the broader uh, American landscape as a black male, um, I'm not sure I would have thrived in graduate school, right, at Emory, which is a very wide institution, um, very different set of priorities, very different cultural agenda, very, di very different curricular agenda. Uh, that, that foundation was absolutely um, crucial. So, and I think that relates to the liberal arts model, right? You know, how are you addressing the humanity of black bodies in these spaces?
You're listening to the Watterson Harvest Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We'll be back after this short break. You're listening to the Watterson Harvest Show on Blue Ridge Public Radio. This episode about historically black colleges and universities was recorded on June 16th at the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts as part of the Asheville Ideas Festival. So we've talked um, quite a bit about um, issues pertaining to a renaissance of of, of interest in HBCUs, but I'm curious to hear uh, what are some sort of stubborn challenges, some persistent challenges that that you all are wrestling with um, as as leaders? Yeah, I'll I, I take a first shot at that. Yeah. I think uh, 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 we just heard about the article that um, uh, you mentioned that came out in, in the uh, New York Times uh, last week, uh, why uh, students are choosing uh, HBCUs. Uh, it's called the uh, four-year family plan. Um, what stood out to me um, in that sense, in terms of the, the challenges facing HBCUs, is really in the area of funding. I think in that article, um, it was mentioned that the 10 largest HBCUs have a total of $2 billion in endowment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the 10 largest PWIs have a total of $200 billion in endowment. And so if you compare $2 billion to $200 billion, you will see that that is such a disparity in terms of what we are able to do, uh, the scholarship that we're able to provide, the resources that we're able to provide. So when you say challenges, for me, that's the first one that comes to fall. And how do we bridge that gap? Well, we're thankful for what we've talked about now in terms of the attention that we're getting from foundations, industries, and philanthropists, and all of that. But this is going to take a generation. We're talking about students who have been, in some cases, marginalized for a longer, longer time. When you look at the composition of our students, for instance, in our institution, more than 70% of our students are Pell recipient, which means they need some form of you know, assistance. When you compare that to some of our counterparts in the PWIs, that number decreases very, very, very uh, dramatically. And so what it suggests to us is that there it needs to continue to be a funding opportunity for HBCUs, <coughs> particularly for those of us who are public institutions, and for the private ones as well. And so that's the biggest challenge there. There are other areas where we can look at, because when you also look at our infrastructure, as you mentioned earlier, schools that have been founded in 1800s and all of that, and that have been marginalized and not funded very well. And you look at our buildings, our facilities, our resources, uh, when students Today's students, particularly the millennial, when they are choosing institutions, they're not just looking at classroom and you know, they are looking for a campus environment, uh, facilities that are conducive to their learning. Mm-hmm. When they go to PWIs and see impressive student union centers, movie theaters, swimming pools, and all of that, 
and then visit some of our campuses where you have buildings that are so aging and needing repairs. All of that is going to take funding. And if we're going to create a similar environment that, that encourages and are conducive to learning for our students in terms of labs, resources in the library, um, housing, uh, and many other aspects of student life, we're going to have to continue to infuse uh, large amounts of funding uh, into HBCU. So that's a big challenge. I'm sure that yeah. my, my well, colleagues will In addition to the statistics that you mentioned with respect to endowment, HBCUs t tend to charge about 30% less in tuition to provide access uh, and excellence. And uh, so we're looking at an un sustainable financial model, not only for HBCUs, but for all of higher education. And, and, and if I think that if we are operating, I think I'm fine. <laughs> if we are operating under the assumption that it is in a, a renaissance, I'm not so sure it is, but let's say for the sake of this discussion that it is. Uh, and I think that we've made some great strides in terms of funding, in terms of people looking at these institutions over the past four to five years. We have a long ways to go in terms of changing the mindset of folks and getting everybody to believe that students who attend these universities are deserving of the best. Mm. You know, and if we can change that mindset, that's when we're really going to be in a, in, in a renaissance and a transformation. Once the Salem State University, founded in 1892 by Simon Green Atkins, when asked what would he teach for individuals who were enslaved, who would be laborers and work with their hands. And he answered it with a question. He said, what do they teach at Harvard? And what do they teach at the world's great universities? That's a mindset, believing that those students deserve the best. I listened to Chancellor Martin open up this state-of-the-art engineering school. And he talked about to the audience, and he says, our students deserve this. They deserve, they deserve the best and the latest in terms of technology. And so if we change that mindset, we'll see a transformation, even more of a transformation at our institutions. Okay. My comments follow uh, Chancellor uh, Robinson's comments as well. Uh, is, is framing a different societal thinking about the role that historically black colleges and universities play. Um, two key points I'd make. Um, when making comparisons, we are fortunate to all be in the UNC system here in North Carolina. We really are. We say fortunate yep. because over history, North Carolina, its legislature and the governor and the citizens of North Carolina have been fairly generous to funding higher education. And that has benefited all of its institutions and in turn benefited the citizens of North Carolina as well. But only recently as well has there been a clarity of discussion even in the governance of the University of North Carolina system that its HBCUs are just as valuable to the state of North Carolina and its future as its other 11 institutions as well. We have a Board of Governors member and some other representatives here in the audience today. 
And I say that to suggest that society has to recognize the important historical role we've played and the important role we will continue to play and the investments that are necessary to ensure that each of our institutions fulfills to its maximum potential the opportunities to grow, expand, diversify its academic programs, enhance its research, and ultimately impacts the communities and the regions and our state as a whole. That's critically important. So we all bring a certain micro-bias about the quality and excellence of HBCUs. Well, let's face it, there is mediocrity across right. institutions of any ethnicity. Society has to stop comparing our institutions to the top tier institutions because they're not our peers. But when you compare us to those comparable institutions, Research Two Universities, which is what our university is, we thrive in that research community in a very significant way. When you compare my colleagues and their institutions and the peer groups and the relevant peer groups of their institutions, of other institutions, of the majority institutions, they thrive in that space. So we have to move away from our micro biases and false comparisons and recognize the excellence of what we do in the spaces where we excel. And we are continuing to push the envelope and change the way society views our institutions. If there's a renaissance, that's part of the renaissance. If anything, it's changing society's right. perspective. When you look across um, the um, uh, thriving African-Americans in America, high percentages of those in all sectors of business, from government to the corporate sector, as entrepreneurs, doctors, lawyers, dentists, uh, professionals, high percentage of those professionals have graduated from HBCUs in America. They have. Increasingly, our universities, which were far more diverse uh, early from the turn of the period shortly after the Civil War, much more diverse than majority institutions ever considered being. We've always been institutions that welcomed uh, citizens of any race or ethnicity or national origin uh, in our institutions, and we continue to do that today. Many of our institutions are much more diverse than PWIs are today. So that we have to continue to share that message. As my board chair continues to share with me, we must continue to tell our story about what we do, how well we do it, and what our aspirations are unapologetically about the future of our institutions as well. So much more to do. Thank you so much. So I get the uncomfortable task of looking at the clock. And those of you who listen to the Waters and Harvey show, you know Marcus and I are always amazed at how quickly the time goes because these conversations become so dynamic. But what we wanted to do is give you all in the audience an opportunity to ask questions or to respond to some of the things that you've heard. And I think we'd like to set aside maybe 15 minutes to do that. So if you want to start thinking about that, there are two mics in front, uh, one on this side and one on 
uh, on each side of the auditorium. And if you have questions, we'd like to invite those questions now. My question takes a step back and it looks at our youth, particularly in high school, and the incredible stress and burden that young and, I want to say mostly uh, men, young men of color, are holding even before they get to college or university or thinking about college or university. That stress is getting in the way of making good decisions and having access to them. In addition to that, if they get into school, when they get into school, we're looking at attrition rates. Do they stay in? So my question to you is, how do we partner with high schools, communities, to stabilize and build trust in I think your question is, is, is so profound uh, in the sense that part of what we do, particularly for groups such as just mentioned African-American males, uh, we have to do a better job really partnering with K through 12 because the job of reco the recovery of young African-American males have to start very early. I mean, these are a group of kids who have a set of challenges because of where they have been in the society. And it's going to take uh, extra resources from us and partnership where we begin to put things in place as early as possible in terms of curriculum, in terms of development, in terms of career planning uh, and, and other things that we do to assist them uh, while they're home. Um, from my experience, uh, most of our students are first generation college students, um, mostly from low income. And when they get to us, they come with a set of unique challenges. And that takes additional resources from us to be sure that we put certain programs in place that can attend to those non-cognitive issues that they bring to us. A kid who is the first one to ever attend college needs a special attention, uh, study habits, uh, how to deal with social issues, um, how to manage uh, themselves. And so, when we raised the question earlier in terms of challenges that we face, in order for us to be able to work with this set of students and to help them uh, in the areas that we mentioned, we need additional advisors, we need career counselors, we need mentors uh, on our campus. These things do take a lot of money. On our campus, we have a program that we refer to as African-American male uh, achievement Center. Why? Because we believe that these young men uh, needed a set of different attention for them that occurs outside of the classroom. How do you see yourself as a male? How do you carry yourself? How do you respond to social pressures and things like that? And so to respond to your questions, we have been doing that and that's what you mentioned at Morehouse. But 
I'm going back to the point that it takes resources to do that. And we have to have the funding to be able to provide all those, all those resources. And we've done a good job uh, of this because today, if you look at the graduation rate of our, our African American, they're not quite yet where we wanted to be, uh, but they are doing well and they are coming out and, and they have been successful. Uh, the other thing I would, I would say to that, in terms of what you're saying, how can we better help them? When we talk to industries and, and foundations and corporations nowadays, what I say to them as chancellor is, yes, I need your money, but I also need you to create a pathway for them to get into your industry, career path, internship opportunities during the summer, paid, an immersion experience for them, first time they go into that type of setting. And if they do well, hire them. And so those opportunities have to be provided for them, not just in, the, in, in, in school, but by industries and corporations that uh, are, are, are taking greater interest uh, in the diversity of the workforce uh, nowadays. And that way, uh, we can ensure their success uh, post college education. I would, I would argue that we also need to disrupt the structures of the academy. We saw 1.4 million students drop out of college uh, as a result of the pandemic. The only population that hasn't increased since then is African American males. And so at ACNU we have an initiative. Uh, we are establishing centers for truth, racial healing, and transformation. We hope on 150 college and university campuses across the country. And the goal is to engage in narrative change in a way that undermines the belief in a hierarchy of human value, which is at the basis of what you were talking about, this, this persistent notion that equity and excellence are inconsistent. But to do that, we have to be visible in the communities in which we're located, and we don't give tenure and promotion based on this type of work, partnering with K through 12 business industry, serving those we're here to serve. Instead, we give it on the basis of who publishes in peer-reviewed journal articles that only six people will read. So let's reward people based on how they transform the lives of others. <laughs> I think it's true. I, I love the comment about being disruptive because that's what we have to, have to be. Uh, if we look at all the changes and all the things that we need to do in this society, in the area that you're talking about. I mean, we've got to come up with a whole new system. We've got to tear up the existing system. The status quo is simply not working. It begins very early on. Take any major city, any community. Uh, we look at third grade reading levels uh, for, for uh, African Americans at 32%. When I came to Winston-Salem, today is probably 32, 34. So whatever we're doing is not working. And we got to come up with some new creative solutions around this. And we got to get serious because this is a serious problem for our community. I, I just, before we entertain the next question, I know this is something that Marcus, thank you, Dr. Pascarella, for addressing that and how tenure is given in colleges and universities. There is a need for this engagement. I'm happy to be here today with a couple of my colleagues from the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. Mm -hmm. And the, our department, as you know, um, is seeking deeper partnerships with you all because it's doing, that department is doing a lot of the public engagement and how you know, younger kids, younger students are engaging, you know, the history of North Carolina in, in the case of my office are just 
just the natural, the other natural resources of the state. And it's important for them to be able to see themselves represented in these spaces. And so I think that there's a need for a ongoing engagement with these institutions and an institution like the Department of Natural Cultural Resources to do some of that work. And so thank you for addressing that point because I think this, the public, kind of the public intellectual work is so important to moving the needle in our society in the way that you all have just addressed. Yes, sir. But I'd like to recast the question in a slightly different direction, which I am sure everyone has considered. I happen to be one of the first male graduates of Sarah Lawrence College, the eighth sister of the seven sisters. We live in, a, in an America that is as schismed and polarized as most of us have ever experienced in our life. Racial lines, gender lines, and most dangerously, or political lines, and this perfect moment. Could you please address your perspective looking forward? Um, because there is a perspective, and I know every one of you has considered this, in which HBCUs are something of a separate but equal educational system. And any time you sort out people, my race, or gender, or religion, um, you are not contributing necessarily to a holistic place. From the perspective of somebody who um, heads an association dealing with a thousand institutions across the country, the great strength of American higher education is its diversity exactly. of institutional types. And there. So I, I think that there is room for women's colleges, for HBCUs, which are, as we've heard, are extraordinarily diverse. 25% of students at HBCUs are, uh, don't identify as African American. And so it is important that we learn to speak across differences, that we engage in moral imagination, imagining what it's like to be in the shoes of another different from oneself. But it's not as if, despite the rhetoric, we exist in bubbles at HBCUs and women's colleges. We live in the real world. Just look at the fact that HBCUs over the past several months have received a flurry of bomb threats, have had to shut down operations as a result of what's going on. Um, there's constant awareness of the external world. Um, but it's a very good question, and it's something that we need to address every single day. I certainly had to address it when I, um, as a president, made a decision to accept both trans men and trans women at um, a, a women's college. Yeah. I believe, I think, when we have this kind of discussion, we talk about the diversity of institutions, 4,000 universities and colleges in this country, a little bit over 100, 101 HBCUs, and we seem to be the only set of colleges and universities that have to explain themselves and have to say why we exist. You know, I often wonder about that. Why is that the case? Uh, but I think once I, I made a comment early about language matters, and in this case, language matters, because when you talk about historically black colleges and universities, people immediately think about, well, that's a black university. You know, we're not a black university. We're a historically black university. You know, historic nature of that, where universities have been around uh, for a century and a half and we have never closed our doors to anyone. There's a unique experience at HBCUs. That experience is there, and you, we're not gonna change that experience. We're not gonna change that cultural relevance, 
but we want, that is, a, that is an experience and a cultural relevance that we think everybody would enjoy and appreciate. It's like traveling to Paris. <laughs> you know? I, 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 I also think that um, it, 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 that was a I mean, profound question, really. Mm. And as you heard last night from uh, Farid, uh, we are still moving towards a perfect union. We're not there yet. We still have issues in all of the areas that you mentioned there, discrimination, racism, ageism, sexism. But with all of that, our students today, particularly African-American students, as I said earlier, do have options. And when you look at the percentage of African-Americans in some of our institutions within the state, ECU, UNC Greensboro, UNC Charlotte, you're beginning to see a sizable number. I mean, in many cases, close to 30% now of African Americans in those institutions. So I think that the question of choice is still there. And we, we ought to celebrate that, that our students have the option to choose where they think they would have the best and the most powerful learning experience. And um, it's, it's our hope that at some point in the future, uh, we would be talking about you know, different types of institution. Uh, and, uh, but for now, I think we ought to celebrate all of the differences and the diversity and the options uh, that we have and work towards strengthening all of these institutions in all of the areas that we've mentioned uh, earlier. I served as a trustee at a college, and my concern was not so much with the bright students. These are people who are going to figure it out. My concern was with the other group, you know, the worker bees up tomorrow, the middle class up tomorrow. And I found that it was, they were the ones that struggled with the basic things, paying tuition, housing, transportation, just to get going on a day-to-day -day basis. Can you talk about what your schools are doing to help, help these kids from, uh, from the perspective of you know, getting tuition and books and transportation and housing? At A&T, one of the important approaches to um, building our enrollment is to evaluate students based on their academic track record in high school and how that academic record meshes with students who've attended our university historically and have been successful based on their high school GPA, test scores, et cetera. And we don't base it on what it takes for that student to have thrived at North Carolina Central or at Purdue or any other institution, because we want to make sure we are affording that student every possible opportunity to be successful. So we make submissions on historical thresholds 
Now, that continues to shift forward. Uh, and we also are pressured through the expectations that our board sets for our university's performance, as well as the expectations of the Board of Governors and the legislature on the performance of our university or our universities on retention, graduation rates, and the expectations that society places on our institutions to get our graduates to the finish line expediently. And so that defines our profile for how we define who gets admitted to our institution. Once they arrive, we deploy federal funds, institutional funds that support uh, the students with the most significant financial need based on financial uh, assessments through their FAFSAs, the parental ability to support their children to go to college. And we deploy uh, high percentages of grant aid, not loan aid, because what you're finding is we, like North Carolina Central in the same state, have a high percentage of Pell-eligible students. These are students uh, whose families uh, qualify for federal financial aid, as you know. And so what we seek to do is ensure that um, Pell grants are only about $6,000 a year. The total cost to attend the institution, mm -hmm. full-time in-state, housing, et cetera, approaches about $20,000, right. a little more. So we have to try to make up some of that difference. Now, you've heard some of the uh, conversation about low endowments of our institutions. We've been very fortunate to drive our endowment to be more competitive with our peers. That helps us deploy more of that income uh, from our endowment to help those students to reduce their debt burden uh, so that when they graduate from our institution in the four to six year window, not on an eight year plan, if you will, uh, so that these students graduate with limited debt. We know from an institutional perspective, and we're very intentional about it, that we need to send these students out into the workforce. We are a large HBCU. We're a large institution. We graduate large numbers of African-American students in health sciences, in engineering, in agri-sciences, and large numbers of our students want to go into med school, to dental school, to law school. And we know they can't do that if they're carrying with them already a huge amount of debt. So we help to reduce that debt. We intentionally do that. We also know that these young people are going to leave and go out into the world of work. We don't want them defaulting on their loans because if they default on their loans, they can't get a home mortgage. They can't buy a car. Society does that. And we already know that far too many African-Americans don't qualify for home loans or are redlined into communities that are uh, low home mortgages. And so we try to ensure that we're positioning our graduates to be at the very best place they can be to go out into the marketplace and thrive in society. So your question is a very relevant one, but it's not just something that I'm sure we intentionally do, but this is probably an issue of importance across every um, HBCU leadership board group in America. That how we try to frame what we do to ensure that our graduates are best positioned to go out in society upon graduation and make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Your question is really one 
about equity, and then how do you make sure that every single student gets a high-quality education? Our QEP, our new QEP plan, is really around that. Looking at every single student, we use data analytics to be able to track those students, where they are. I can tell you where every single student is every minute of the day. I can tell if they're in the library, I can tell if they go in the class, and we, you know, and so you really have to touch that that group, and that leads to overall a high quality uh, success, student outcome success. New report for this audience that came out by UNCF talked about student success across all universities in this country. And I could tell you the three universities here, HBCUs, are in the top 20 across the country. You know, the question that you raise is so pointed because m many people do not understand that students, maybe they do, are, are human beings and they have needs. And so, Chancellor Martin talked about uh, financial assistance, financial aid. There is what we call unmet needs. Even outside of the financial assistance they get from the federal, federal funds. And so I would stress again that scholarship, scholarship, scholarship. I can tell you more than 60% of my students work 20 hours a week or more. For what? Transportation, gas in the car, and things that we do not think of. And these things are called uh, unmet needs, and that's what you are referring to. In order for us to be able to do that, we have to have uh, additional funding to assist those students. Uh, and well, I wanted to say, at ASANU, we don't talk about um, college-ready students. We talk about student-ready colleges and look at ways that we can encourage institutions um, around best practices like the one we just heard. Disaggregate data. See how many of your students are engaging in high-impact practices and make sure that those are embedded into the curriculum, into first-year seminars, undergraduate research opportunities, internships, apprenticeship opportunities, and that those are paid for by the institution or by alumni who are eager to support student success at their own institutions. Well, we want to thank each of you for, uh, this, for your participation in this wonderful conversation. It's gone much too fast. And Marcus and I, I think each show we do, we, we will end up saying we would love to have you come back as a guest on the Waters and Harvest Show to continue a deeper conversation if you're willing to do that. We'll reach out to you at some point to do that. Marcus and I are committed, as is UNC Asheville, and other institutions in continuing to tell the storied history of these, uni these universities and these institutions because they need to be told. Um, so as we get ready to close this out, uh, Marcus and I again want to remind you that the Waters and Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, and in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter or write us at whshow at bpr.org. And again, we want to thank you for participating in this conversation. Thank you to the audience for being here. Thank you to Chancellor Cable and UNC Asheville for hosting this wonderful event. And Marcus and I are going to look forward to talking to you all again next time. Thank you. Thank you.